You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Fay, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly, heart-stopping, mic-drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. John Lloyd Young is the Tony and Grammy-winning star from the original Broadway cast of Jersey Boys, as well as Clint Eastwood's Warner Brothers movie adaptation. Young is the only American actor to have received these four major awards for a Broadway musical, the Tony, the Drama Desk, the Outer Critics Circle, and the Theater World Awards. In his New York Times review, this is what Ben Brantley wrote about John Lloyd playing Frankie Valley. Mr. Young has crossed the line from exact impersonation into something more compelling. It's that sort of melting from perfect wax effigy into imperfect flesh. Brantley goes on to say, inhaling the cheers of the crowd, Mr. Young as Mr. Valley glistens with that mix of tears and sweat and everything that has led up to that curtain call feels just for a second, and as real and vivid as the sting of your hands clapping together. John Lloyd Young has performed concerts at the White House, Carnegie Hall, and all around the world. And on February 12th, he will be performing at the Space Las Vegas in John Lloyd Young's Vegas Valentine. His intimate show will be streamed live as he sings beloved Jersey Boys favorites and romantic classic tunes. Welcome, John Lloyd. How are you? Hi. Hi. Oh, my God. Hearing those lines from that review. Oh, my God. (laughs) I just got I just got tingles myself. I got tingles to reading it again. <laughs> After all these years, I, I read it again. My hands, you know, I, I clapped mm. my hands just to feel that feeling, just to feel what it's like to be an audience member and to witness that. And I remember seeing you oh. and how magical that was. Well, so the, how- the, ma- the magic was mutual, right? I mean, not because yes. what he was picking up on, um, was what they that 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 thing that they call flow where your where yeah. your your talents overlap with your activities perfectly and it was just uh oh what a great moment that was and yeah. i got to do it 1300 times i got to feel that moment you know all over the world and, and yeah and it's visceral and that's why i love live theater that's why i i love being together as part of an audience and that collective joy that we all have together that you just there's can't get. Yeah. Nothing like it. It's really, yes. there's nothing like it in the world. How are you doing? How are you staying creatively nourished? Well, you know, it's, I'm a natural introvert. So for me, you know, between concerts, whatever, I come home and I, I you know, keep to myself anyway, but even this has just been too much for me. 
um, to not be able to engage with other people, to, to be constantly on the lookout for yourself, you know, to make sure you're properly distanced. It's just, it's exhausting, you know? Um, and yet, uh, these live streams for me have been a lifeline because I have not had to, I've, I haven't had to lose my momentum with my followers and fans and I haven't had to lose that feeling of live performance because I give the same show. Look, this place that I play, the space, is a live performance space, but it's one of those places that doesn't have fixed seating. So they're able to clear out all of the tables and turn it into a soundstage and turn it into a TV production, you know. And, and so, and, you know, of course, I've done some work uh, in front of cameras anyway right right i've got some experience in front of cameras so for me it's a slight adjustment to just um to know that there are people in real time on the other side of that camera who are experiencing what i'm doing you know in real time this it's very similar to a, a live performance and and it really has kept me uh sane as a performer who loves to do this um, it's, it's, it's a slight adjustment really, because I have a good imagination and I see all those faces there, even though, even though I know they're sitting, you know, on a couch, like you are in their own apartment or whatever. I, I know we're all experiencing something in real time and you might not breathe in the, the energy of the real room, but we're as close as we can get. And, uh, and for me, it's it, it, in a way it's almost better because, uh, I get to have an individual conversation with each person, but they, <laughs> I can't hear what they're doing or say. So, you know, there can't be, if I can, if someone from the audience wants to say something to me, it doesn't interrupt my flow. It's that part of it is, is, yeah. is missing, but I don't know if that's an answer to your question. It, the live <laughs> streams are what are kind of keeping me sane and keeping me engaged. Cause you've done a, a couple of them now, right? This is yeah. your fourth. Is this is the fourth or fifth one. Yeah. And, and uh, how do you choose? I know this is the Valentine's Day one. And, you, yeah. and you, you're going out to Vegas, right? Yeah. Unless you're already. How do for you me, choose? So I'm an L.A. guy. So for me, Vegas yeah. is, a, is a short road trip. And, um, and it's perfect for COVID and distancing and safety because I just drive myself in my own little car, you know, my own pod. Uh, and my music director, Tommy Farragher, is also an L.A. guy. He drives himself. We get together for the sound check, distanced. We do the show. We go our separate ways. It's a very safe way to do this without sacrificing production value. So don't have to do it from – I don't have to do it from my kitchen and Tommy is remotely on Zoom or whatever from his kitchen. We get to go into the real performance space with this amazing lighting and sound package. So none of that is sacrificed. And, um, you know, I don't know, it's working out great. It's working out wonderfully. It feels as, as good as it can feel under these circumstances. It's so phenomenal. How, how do you choose what songs you're going to sing? It- you know, it's like a chef who has yeah. his own restaurant. What ah. do I want on the, what do I want on the menu today? And, and so, and, and so, you know, Valentine's day, which is like a specific holiday, 
what of the great, wonderful, beautiful, romantic love songs, lush ballads, whatever. So what am I going to put on the menu tonight? And the, and and my this is a Valentine's menu, so you can just assume it's going to be things that uh, people who want to swoon and think of love and all that stuff. But I also understand that a lot of us right now are isolated, and and every Valentine's Day is like that, where you, just because it's Valentine's Day doesn't mean we have a Valentine or we have a date. And I've always acknowledged that every single time that I do my Valentine's concert, just sort of like a, a specialty for me that I sing songs about losing love too, or songs about pining for people, you know, when you're alone. Uh, so everybody has a seat at this table, whether they're canoodling lovers or just single people, you know, dreaming about that love or that unrequited love. In fact, probably half to three quarters of my love songs are the messy side of love, which, I, which is my favorite because I'm an Italian singer and a Welsh singer Think about Italian singers and Welsh singers, okay? Oof. Think about Tom Tom Jones, Shirley Bassey on like the the Welsh side, wow. and then every Italian singer you've ever heard of. We're highly emotional singers <laughs> in our traditions, and I love the messy love songs. They're my yeah. favorite ones. So it's like a tsunami. <laughs> oh my god! There's you, have you ever heard of the folk singing the Portuguese folk singing fado? You ever heard of oh. fado? It sounds familiar. They sound familiar. Tell me Fado, more. Fado is this is a kind of club singing that's uh, Portuguese. Uh, I think probably started in Lisbon, and you go into these little cafes, um, and there's a little platform with a guitarist or whatever, and you have these singers who look like life has just beaten them up, and they get up there in these little places and they sing songs that are so full of emotion and it it's a world form of music that it is there, you know, one of the famous, they're called fadistas, the people sing fado and they, and they say uh, one of the famous fadistas and I remember who, who she was specifically, but she says when fado is sung correctly, it's like a knife twisting in your chest and I swoon when I hear that kind of description of singing, you know, the Edith Piaf, the all of the messy, you know, I think in that Ben Brantley review that you mentioned, my favorite line, and I'm paraphrasing, was that young as Valley channels all the messy something, whatever horrible feelings of life into these songs. That to me is my, is the pinnacle of achievement as a singer to channel the channel that human frustration and the even the hurt so good kind of feelings of of love and emotion into songs that that, that yeah. to me is that, that to me is living fully as a singer when you're it's messy i love it yeah that's why i love hearing you sing since i don't have you and you know all those oh. messy songs and some of my favorite stories to write i i used to every year and now you're inspiring me to go back to i write a um a story how to be single on valentine's day and it's usually uh, you're single and you don't have a valentine i get mm -hmm. oftentimes i get a comic to weigh in about how yep. to deal with valentine's and yep. i embrace the messy i'm all for that oh. It's my favorite, my favorite type of song is the messy feelings, you know, yeah, working them out, working them out through song. 
Yeah, to be human. Let's talk about your lightning strikes moment or moment in your life. Can you pinpoint to a moment or moments where you thought, oh God, this is my path. I have to do this. Yeah. And first of all, can I tell you that lightning strikes is literally uh, oftentimes my opening song. Oh, the I Lou love Christie. That. Yeah, the Lou Christie. It was you know very early on. I realized, okay, you're getting known for singing this Frankie Valley high falsetto stuff. What's another song you could sing that from that period that shows off the same notes? And Lightning Strikes, Lou Christie's Lightning Strikes is what, it's a part of my repertoire for years and years. Okay, love but that. that's not your question. So, <laughs> my Lightning Strikes moments have been several actually, and over. Uh, you know, different periods of my life. My first one, I was a six-year-old kid and my grandparents were New Yorkers and my grandmother, you know, uh, on my mother's side, the Italian Americans, my grandmother used to have um, a bridge game and she won big one summer. We were taking limos all over the city. She took us to radio, me and my cousin to Radio City Music Hall. I was six years old. We went to a Broadway show. My first Broadway show was Annie. And uh, and I was a little kid, six years old, and I was sitting up in the mezzanine. I remember distinctly because there's the big brass bar and I was putting my hand on the brass, on the cool brass bar and looking down over the people sitting in the orchestra. It was really exciting. We were sitting all the way to the right of the auditorium. And my mom had told me before I went to the show, you're, you're not supposed to see the actors in the wings. Okay. So I, whatever, you know, whatever that meant, means. So I was sitting so far to the right that I could see all the little girls getting ready to make their entrances from the wings. And I remember thinking, I'm not supposed to see them. <laughs> also in Annie, they had this, um, a treadmill on the stage that would, you know, that, that one, I think the NYC, uh, yeah number they're all they're walking in place but it's like the the scenery is moving past them but they're walking on a treadmill and you know i'm six years old this is fascinating for me to see the 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 technological stuff happening on the stage anyway all these little girls running in and off the stage and 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 this exciting show and they were little girls my age or a little older so my lightning strikes moment was wow this is something you could do as a kid you could be a kid on broadway I remember I went home with my program and it, it was Allison Smith at that point who was playing Annie. I still remember. And then she was on a sitcom, Kate and Allie. And I remember I used to watch it as a kid and I was like, that's Allison Smith. I saw her on Broadway. You know, that was my first lightning strikes. I used to draw pictures in the, I, I, I carried the program around like it was a coloring book and I would circle things and draw in it. And, you know, I, I was fascinated with the whole thing, all the pictures, of the little girls. And cause I was a little boy and I thought well, if there's a little girl show, there might be a little boy show. And soon after that, the college in the town that I lived in upstate New York was doing Oliver. And I was like, yeah, there's a little boy show. I could be an urchin and Oliver. And I was, so <gasps> that was my first exposure and excitement around Broadway. And then there were another lightning strikes moments throughout my life, you know, um, rent when I was older, uh, I was still an undergrad at Brown university. I, you know, I wanted to go and be on Broadway and be an actor in New York. And I had gone, there were open calls for rent. I was still in school and I, and I took the bus to New York and I auditioned and I got a call back for rent and I went back 
to school because I still had to go. And I suddenly, you know, all of my theater professors, everybody, everyone was so impressed that I got a call back. And I remember one of my professors, my acting teachers said to me, if you get a call back for Broadway, that means you're going to be on Broadway. I mean, that is the that is the sign that you got what it takes to be in a show. And that for me was a huge moment. Now, I didn't get cast then and in that show. That was my big dream to be in Rent. I got cast ultimately in, you know, my first Broadway show was Jersey Boys. And then that was my own show where I was the star of my own show. And it wasn't Rent. I wasn't Replacement. I was original cast. So it was even better than my first dream. But that was another lightning strikes moment is uh, getting a callback for Broadway when I was still an undergrad. I hadn't even hadn't even moved to New York and tried it yet. That's extraordinary. So that's, that's another yeah. one. I mean, there's there's a lot of them, but those are the two that have come to mind first. So the very first time you did Jersey Boys was on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. Playing Frankie Valley. That's pretty heady. Yeah. Pretty heady. Well, <laughs> yeah. then can you do you talk about one of your first professional gigs? Uh, one of the well, the most the most meaningful one of of, of those initial gigs in New York was uh, it was a regional production of Chaim Potok's The Chosen, a dramatic adaptation mm-hmm. of that. There's there was a ill-fated musical. This was the play, um, and it was a joint production which they were doing a lot in the regional theaters at that point in the early two thousands. A joint production between the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Miami and Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey. And the star of it was Theodore Bacall. And now I knew everything about Broadway. I was a real Broadway baby and so much so that I was a teaching assistant at this big survey of the American musical at Brown. And I, and my, my, I taught the segment on candor and ebb, you know, so I knew all the Broadway history. So to be cast in something where, Theodore Bikel was playing my father. You know, this was the longest running president of Actors' Equity, the the guy who had played um, Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof more than any other actor, the original Captain Von Trapp in, in Sound of Music with Mary Martin, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein wrote Edelweiss for Theo because he played the guitar and they wrote a song for him. Edelweiss was the last lyric that Oscar Hammerstein ever wrote for anyone. And Theodore Bekel liked to tell the story that the last word that Hammerstein ever wrote on paper was forever, which is beautiful, you know, so bless my homeland forever, you know? So, um, so I was doing, I was doing a play with Theodore Bekel who was theater royalty, you know, without a question, not to mention the fact I was raised with a Jewish stepfather, a step-grandfather um, who had fought in World War II. And, and the, all of the stories about the Holocaust and everything were a big part of my childhood. And here was a man who watched Hitler uh, march outside his window as a boy in Austria and escaped. You know, So if you follow Theodore Bekel or anyone who does, or what, mm. you know, really, they venerate him as a hero of the Holocaust, You know, yeah. escaped that. He, he was a wonderful brilliant man. And he was playing my father. I felt at that point, I was doing this regional production and getting validated by, by this, this lion of an actor, you know, who said to me very early on in, in rehearsals, uh, you do good work. You know, it's, I, I was floored. 
I was a struggling actor working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter on graveyard shift as a word processor, trying to make ends meet. And here I am in Miami rehearsing, uh, rehearsing this really fantastic, beautiful, um, poetic play, you know, um, um, opposite Theodore Bacall. That to me was uh, such a privilege. And it made me feel there might be some hope that I would be doing some great things in the future that I had the skills or was gaining the skills to be actually another actor in that realm. What a mentor to have just, and and so early on, that's extraordinary. I remember, you know, all throughout my childhood looking at LPs and theater, yeah. Oh yeah. Thinking about all his name and the, you know, the big, what a unique sounding name, you know, just, Mm-hmm. Oh, how and, you know, I, I remember too, you know, it was really, really fun coming out of the stage door in Miami because um, there was a, a really uh, large uh, Jewish audience for that play because of its themes and also because of Theo. And all of these Hadassah women would come within busloads and they'd be outside of the stage door with those LPs for <laughs> Theo to sign them. And I, and that was exciting because I'd never been around someone who was a star that people wanted him who wanted them to sign things. So seeing that outside the stage door every day and being an integral character in that play, because I was, I played Danny Saunders, who was, you know, his son and the heir apparent to the, you know, to being the tzaddik or the, the rabbi of the community. So it's a very important part. Um, it was just rewarding on every level, not to mention the mm-hmm. fact that it was December and we were hanging out at the pool in Miami, you know, it's a great <laughs> feeling. <you know? laughs> anyway, And it's a beautiful, well, I love the source material. And then the movie was, yeah. It's anyway, a gorgeous, the, I, gorgeous, it's gorgeous book. When did you know that you had this gift that you could sing? I've always been a natural singer. And so my, my parents and my stepmother discovered it when I was just a toddler. Um, so much so that I was featured in their wedding. I'm going to date myself because do the math. The song, their wedding song was you light up my life. (laughs) And so you can kind of place what time, you know, and, and you could probably age me if you figure out when that was a big hit. So my, job at the wedding was at the reception was to um, sing you you light up my life and i was three years old and uh i the band leader you know held me up in in his arms and gave me the microphone and i sang it acapella and on key you know relative pitch i had already then and uh, so it was very very early in my life that um that I, you know, my family or whatever people noticed that I was a good singer. And then I was always in chorus or I was in the musicals uh, that kids could be in, in the community. And it was, I was always a very natural singer. Um, And in fact, I got to New York at one point and I had, I was, I was uh, in one of those stages where you want to be involved, but they haven't, they don't know you yet. And you're still auditioning. And that's frustrating period where, you know, you have some, skills but you just haven't been acknowledged right so i was in a it, it was a moment of kind of like um, frustration and, and i remember i said to i had uh, my my then girlfriend 
I remember saying to her, this is bullshit. I'm the best singer in New York and I had done nothing, you know, I'd done nothing. <laughs> and I, and I, and I had this feeling, you know, it, but, but I, I was such a, a acknowledged good singer my whole life. And I knew I had this capacity and this was Jersey boys wasn't even on the horizon yet, but within two and a half. And she was really angry at me for saying that. She's like, you're so arrogant. You know, it, believe me, it was a moment of when you're arrogant in order to push yourself over the hill yeah. of complete self-loathing and feeling pathetic, you know, yeah. but, but it was just a moment. And I said it out loud. And then I was like, Oh my God, I remembered like two years later when I was getting all of these accolades for my singing a, a couple of years, you know, around that time there had been a, there had been a, an article that came out in like entertainment weekly. And it said the choice, the choicest voices of Broadway. And I remember Adam Pascal was in it and, I think Adam Pascal has one of the best voices in the entire business, if not the best. I, I worship at his voice, especially because that he can has this rough sound that he doesn't hurt himself. Who's that other guy? It was just uh, Alex, um, the guy who just played Beetlejuice. Oh, Alex um, Brightman. Yeah, he's also someone that, that can do things like uh, even in that show with his voice. That yeah, uh -huh. I don't know if I could do that. I could come uh -huh. back at show after show with that rough okay. sound and not lose my voice. But at any rate, two years after I'd made this so arrogant, like astonishingly arrogant comment to my girlfriend, I was getting those, getting called that and as having those accolades. So, uh, so I knew something about myself, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that down the road I was being acknowledged for and, and, um, and being like, well, as something in that was that wasn't very polite, but it was somewhat prophetic. So, and, and maybe anyway. that that sense of confidence got you, you know, into those audition rooms and believing in yourself, in a way. You know, I didn't singing. know how to sing show after show with that kind of falsetto singing, but uh -huh. I was a skilled enough singer, so that with the right training, then I was able to to do it. And, and, and I got better as the run went on. So I was a better singer when I left the show than I was when I was starting because I had it behind me and all the training. And now I say, wherever I go out to sing now, that brutal eight shows a week singing unprecedented amount of songs for a lead in a Broadway musical, because most lead characters, like think about Alfred Drake or those, you know, historic big parts, right? Kismet or something. They have maybe four big songs or five songs. This character has two dozen easily, you know. So years later, when I sing a concert now, I'm a better singer now than I was then. And it's because of then. That was the, who's the guy? Demosthenes with the pebbles in his mouth. The, oh. the great orator in ancient mm -hmm. Greece, he'd go into the amphitheater, but he'd do mm -hmm. pebbles in his mouth to create an impediment so that when he would remove them and he would have this, resounding voice that projected. I look at that as my Demosthenes period where mm. I was doing such brutal singing then that everything since has been much easier. And so I, the best training ever for me as a singer outside of Jersey Boys was Jersey Boys, it was playing Frankie Valli. That's extraordinary. And then talk about, I mean, to just shift to another talent you have, I hear that you're an artist, that you create this one, can you talk about that? Your art? Yeah, I, yeah. I had, sure. I had my, 
my lightning strikes moment with visual art was so when I was an undergrad, you know, I, uh, my dad was Air Force. So I grew up in kind of small towns that they didn't always have a museum or whatever. So the first really exciting art exhibit I saw, I was an undergrad abroad in Spain. And I went to the south of Spain with my art history class, and there was a Warhol exhibit. And I saw the Brillo boxes and these things that these famous things that I'd never seen in person. And was just blown away by what art could be and how exciting it was to see his work in in person. Um, and again, so I, you know, I said, you know, I studied art history in, in college. So I was always, uh, after that, you know, it was a museum hound. In fact, two show days during Jersey Boys, I would go to MoMA and just, it, because it's quiet, a way to keep my voice quiet, but it was also only four blocks away. And I would just wander the, you know, whatever. When, um, uh, I had moved out to LA to do, Les Mis at the Hollywood Bowl. It's 2008. I'd left the show. So soon after I'd left the show, I did about two years, the first two years. Um, I, I entered this market, the LA market during the writer's strike of 2008. So I came, I moved out here. I was born in Sacramento. So I always, always planned to move to California eventually. And I moved out here and there was the writer's strike. And so there was no, nothing going kind of like right now. <laughs> but for different reasons. And, um, and so I was still going to museums and everything. And, and then I had this epiphany, this idea. It was something that I had never seen in a museum before. So I started making pieces with a real understanding of what I was doing in terms of art history and its context. So I was a fan of Arte Povera, which is the movement in the 60s where uh, Italian artists invented, where they would use really cheap materials, like what nowadays you, it would be like doing an art project with things that you just bought from the dollar store. Brill, Brillo, like literally Brillo pads or like steel wool, that they would use materials like that, everyday materials, cheap materials. That's why it's called arte povera, poor art. Um, I got an idea that kind of mixed that with Warholian pop and then like Swarovski or like uh, Judith Lieber, like what she does with the purses and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I imagined, I was like, oh, wow, let me take, so let me take groceries and pave them with jewels, put them under museum glass, but literally the real grocery, like the garbage, that's where the Arte Povera comes in, what you would throw out and instead venerate like this box of rich crackers, venerate it, exalt it, dress it up and put it on a pedestal, literally, in museum glass. And that, and this became an expression that I would, I, first of all, I hadn't seen it anywhere. The closest thing that comes close in my mind is uh, there's a famous piece at MoMA called Object by Merle Oberon. You might know it yeah. if you see it. It's a, it's a fur-covered teacup and, 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 and spoon and saucer covered with fur. And I, and I, so my idea was to cover these things with rhinestones um, and make a piece of garbage into this exalted thing. Now, one of my favorite things about pop, about Warhol's whole thing, was that Warhol, Warhol's uh, idea was to take something and replicate it 
and make hundreds of like one soup can portrait, right? So he would manufacture art like it was a mass-produced thing, like mass-produced soup cans or Ritz boxes or whatever. My play on, on pop is almost, in a way, opposite because the way that I lay the jewels on things, I could have a series of 10 Ritz boxes or something, but the jewels are laid in a different way each time so that each one is a unique object. So I take something that is mass produced and stop it in its tracks and take, make it into a unique thing. So, uh, so for me, so all of these art history things that I've had in my mind since I was an undergrad, I was able to play with and, you know, and, and integrate and create my own unique expression. And it's become a really exciting, uh, second career. You know, now for a decade, I've had, think, I, I think my debut took a few years to build up some work because it's time consuming, <laughs> but my debut was in 2010. And so it's now been 11 years that I've had, that I've had this career and it's been a nice, um, it's been a nice fill in, but because in, in any entertaining career you have downtime, it's filled in every single time I've had downtime, I've been able to be active in the art side of things. And it's interesting, so. the yin and yang of, you know, seeing versus creating something with your hands, you know, mm -hmm. using the different parts of you to express yourself. Yeah. And I can listen to music and find new songs while yeah. I work on art, so yeah. they can all feed into each other. Uh, that's, are, you, are you tired of answering people asking if you'd like to come back to Broadway? If the, if the right role came along? You know, in the perfect world when we're back, I'm hopeful we'll be back. You know, is this something you would like to do? Are yes, and I had, I'm oh. not tired of it. In fact, before it didn't happen, but it was almost going to happen before the pandemic that I, oh. I want, I want to play great roles. I don't care about all the snobbery about, oh, Chicago has been running forever, whatever. I was down the road with maybe Billy Flynn in Chicago because I'm old enough now to do it. And I wanted to play the part in the best production anywhere. I could do it in a regional theater somewhere, but I don't care what someone could be like, Oh, he's all washed up. I'm sorry, but I, I've been around the Broadway community for a long time. It's not nice all the time. And people will say that, Oh, I guess he's got nothing going. So we went into Chicago, which I think is mean, but I wanted to play. The part is great. James Naughton, who won the Tony for the revival is another Brown alumnus, the only other Brown alumnus besides me who has Best Actor in a Musical Tony Award, okay? I mean, David Diggs has one now, but it's featured. James Naughton and I have the big kahuna, uh. you know? So I was looked up to him, and I was an undergrad at Brown when he was doing the original production of this revival. Uh. To, to be old enough to play it now is kind of cool. And so that's something I would, would have done. Didn't happen, but um, almost they offered it to me, but, uh, but there is a, there's a specific role that I would want to go back and do on Broadway right now. Um, and it would be the wizard in the whiz. I think first of all, after what we just went through in our politics to have the one white guy in the whole cast be the charlatan is perfect for our times, you know? And it's also, I, I, I adore and admire uh, 
Andre DeShields and have always been obsessed with The Wiz. The, the Wiz was the best musical Tony winner the year of my birth. So I grew up with it. And, and the part is, if you think about it, for a return to Broadway for someone who hasn't been there for a while, who has been proven to be able to do an exciting performance, right, is one of the most exciting parts in Broadway history. It's the title role. You're waiting and waiting and waiting, just like The Wizard of Oz, everything. You wait for a lot of the show to see The Wiz, The Wizard, for the first time. The so you sit, yeah. you sit there with anticipation, which would be great for me to have my fans or whatever, an audience, wait to see, well, okay, what's he going to be like? Um, and you're not carrying the show. <laughs> you're like with, with Jersey Boys, you know, like that was good for when I was a younger guy. Going back to Broadway now would be nice to get my feet a little wet and to do something exciting, but to not have to carry the whole show. So for me, uh, and his material is, there's two songs, not 24, and they're exciting, ex really exciting songs. And he gets to be this campy, over-the-top, intimidating, electrifying presence. So if there's another Broadway show that, that has that combination of things all in one, I'm open to it. But right now, my dream would be to be like the white guy charlatan, <laughs> you know, in the whiz, a revival of the whiz, a good revival of the whiz. So anyway, whatever, a man can dream. The answer to your question is yes, to go back to Broadway in an exciting way. Absolutely. But let, let's first get Broadway back and then we'll see. Yes. Oh, the other thing, there's another yeah. role that I would want to play. Yes. When Broadway comes back, and of course, you know, it's Lin-Manuel's show. He wrote Hamilton. So if it's good for the show to him be back, to be back in it, you know, if I wrote a show and I, it would be good for business for me to go back in it, I would go back in it. I would love to play Aaron Burr off, opposite Lin-Manuel Miranda. Now, I know that the way they're casting it, I'm not in the right demographic, whatever, but down the line with a show, you know, if uh, America is a country of all different ethnicities and, you know, I think, and, and also what do they say in the show uh, or around the show? Immigrants make it happen. Well, we get the job done. I'm the, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm the grandson of, of Italian American immigrants to New York who helped build that city. So I think that it might be okay for someone, you know, like an Italian guy to go into Hamilton for six months. I mean, we, we built New York city too. So, you know, I think we qualify as immigrant, as an immigrant community that contributed. So. We got some jobs done, some yeah. some bridges built, some tunnels dug. You know, and we we contributed to that city. I think those are such eclectic roles. The three you gave, and what's great, I think about the Wiz. It harkens back, if I may, to your Andy days as a little boy, looking at the kids in the wings, and here you would be playing the guy who's making the sausage, if you will, the proverbial <laughs> sausage. Yeah. <You know? laughs> That was a leap. <laughs> well, no, but you know, there's yeah. it, I, there's nothing like there's nothing like the electricity of a live performance um, in front of an audience uh, that is that doesn't know what to expect. Yeah. Those lights go down, you hear the murmur, um, and uh, and and to walk out there and to participate in that dream life, it's a communication, isn't it? You know, when it's live, mm -hmm. and it's uh, there's nothing like it. So in the meantime. My solo concerts, like this one coming up February 12th, you know, uh, it's, it's that same feeling. You know, it's just not attached to a script. The songs that I sing, 
I am addicted to thrilling songs or gut-wrenching songs, dramatic songs. So I always sing really interesting, electrifying songs. And it's just in little three-minute pieces, right? So it's not a whole script. It's not a whole trajectory of a character. But there are little tastes of it for an hour or whatever, how long the concert goes. And in the meantime, before I get back to Broadway, my live concerts um, have really... Uh, filled that that gap and you're still telling the stories through those songs yeah big time yeah, yeah. Big well time. The, you know yeah. it's like what it's like what barbara streisand always said about about singing that uh, that her songs were one act plays and when mm-hmm. you start as an actor it's a little hard to just sing a song to sound pretty or to just go through those runs or to sing a whole song with your eyes closed all the time you know this when you're an actor first you understand that you're putting over a lyric, you're putting over a story. And I think that if you're also a really thrilling singer, it makes for a really great combination. Yeah. Oh, well, I can't wait to see the concert. And I'm just so thrilled to talk to you. It'll be, now, so now you'll be one of the faces I know I'm singing to. Yes. <laughs> I have, I have uh, you know, dozens and dozens of people I know they watch over the years. I've, they've come to my concerts. <laughs> I have an image in my mind always of who's in the audience and where they're smiling, where they laugh. And so now you're going to be one of those faces. Oh, I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Hope you have a oh, wonderful thank you. Thanks. And, and, and thanks for opening up some things that I have not talked about before. So it's, oh. that's always exciting. It's a joy. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, you too. Be well. Stay safe. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore, and the talent was booked by Anna Strauss. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.